one of the things about entrepreneurship, there is no reward without the risk. Every great entrepreneur had help. And where is that help going to come from? It's going to come from that social network. You don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and save. I think there's a danger when you're in business to find arrogance, and especially if you're doing really well. At the end of the day, I ain't nothing special. I'm just a guy. What has value? Well, what has value is whatever people say has value. I'm going to get better and better and better at what I do as I get older. So the best me is going to be the me right before I die. Marketplace Podcast family, what's going on with you? Welcome back to episode number 161. And today I'm joined with Chris Machezik. Now, Chris advises clients about advertising and marketing through his company, Howard Rockus LLC. His work has won many awards and media posts named him the most influential person on Madison Avenue. That's right. The bright lights at NYC. Now, Chris has written for many different publications, CNET, which many of you may be familiar with from a tech perspective. I actually came across Chris because I started reading his articles in Inc. Magazine, and I love the way he thought about some of the nuances within business, finding humor within business, and being able to write about it. It's sort of the way that I think, so there was a spiritual kindred that I felt, if you will. So I had to reach out to him. I absorbing enough of his content that I wanted to talk to him. So without further ado, here is my man, Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Priest. It's uh, astonishing to be invited. You have so many famous guests, and now there's me. <laughs> well, you're one of them in my mind. I mean, it's exciting to have you part of that prestige guest list, I guess, if you will. If you've heard other interviews, you've heard me ask other guests that we've had on to tell us a little bit about yourself, but your your background is really interesting, or at least in terms of the articles that I read from you. And, and most of our listeners know that I love to dig into the psychology of people, marketing around psychology, and you're, you're somebody content that I've absorbed. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself if you can? Okay. As you can tell, English is not my first language. I was brought up by two Polish refugee parents who were in Stalin's labor camps and suffered more than you could ever imagine. Um, I ended up working in advertising. It wasn't a necessarily rational decision because very few of my decisions ever have been. I became an executive creative director of a bunch of ad agencies all over the world. I lived in Singapore. I lived in Warsaw. I lived in London, New York, and now I live in the Bay Area. Somehow, when I kind of got out of the corporate life a little bit, uh, through all sorts of strange twists and turns, I started what they used to call blog blogging. I'm now a columnist. Blogger is a horrible declasse word these days. But I became a columnist on CNET, which was quite interesting because I knew pretty much nothing about technology. And it's called Technically Incorrect. And thankfully, it's now lots of people read it. I did 10 years on CNET, and now it's on ZDNet. And then I have another column on uh, Inc.com called Absurdly Driven. 
And it really is absurdly driven because life is completely absurd, isn't it? And then on top of all that, which is my main theoretical job, is that I'm the president of a little consultancy called Howard Raucus LLC. And I advise people, clients on all sorts of aspects of marketing, content, advertising, especially enjoying trying to explain to nerds how to communicate like a human being. Explaining to nerds how to communicate like a human being. So first of all, I want to dig into that a little bit, but let's talk about the parallels I feel like you and I share. So I just came back from Singapore in October for the first time ever, and Singapore is unique in many ways, one of which it's extremely clean. I don't know if I've ever seen a city that clean. It's also illegal to chew gum there, which is really odd. Did you did you have any unique experiences while living in Singapore? Technically, it's not illegal to chew gum in Singapore. It's illegal to sell it. And at least that's what, that was the case in my day from what I remember. And, uh, and the big problem was that kids were getting on the subway and sticking the doors together with chewing gum. So the government seemed to think it was a good idea to stop kids having access to chewing gum. Um, did, did I, have, I had a lot of very interesting experiences in a country that um, – is, as you said, very different, has a lot of different aspects. And um, there is a, a veneer. It's quite interesting you call Singapore clean because the truth is it isn't that clean. And it's the, the bits where the tourists go, yeah, that's clean. But when you live there, you can find the places of varying cleanliness, shall we say. There are a few stray dogs around and all kinds of stuff goes on there. So there is a veneer and I know it, it's presented its image very well. And yes, I was responsible for the tourist boards advertising all over the world, as well as Singapore Airlines. Um, underneath, though, when you get to talk to the people, it's a very different place from the impression that's given superficially. That's interesting. I guess, you know, I try to veer off in some areas from the tourist place. Obviously, I did a lot of touristy kind of kind of stuff like go to the marina bay and you know i went to little india and all these other kind of places which you're probably really familiar with yeah i, I i'm sure you could find anywhere but relatively speaking to like new jersey and other places you've gone to <laughs> singapore is super clean so let's put it like that i love the way you choose new jersey as the contrast i mean you had to choose new jersey you couldn't even say florida you had to say new jersey i mean Poor New Jersey. It gets picked on all the time, doesn't it? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have picked Jersey. But yeah, I, it's one of the cleaner cities that I've seen. And I've been all over the U.S. And I could almost pick any city in the U.S. for that matter. Let's say that. And it seems much cleaner than a lot of those places. So I'll leave it at that. But you talked about your parents. I, I, I wanted to revisit this. And this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the the podcast and some of the things I want to get into in terms of the marketing side and psychological side of us. You mentioned being in Stalin camps and such. So what was that like? How was that for you as you became old? Well, the only thing I learned as a kid was survival. My parents, having both independently been in Siberian labor camps, they didn't know each other until afterwards. But it's the sort of it's the experience that's less people don't really make movies about it when the germans came in westward into poland stalin came in eastward and took 1.5 million poles away and shoved them in labor camps and they were one they were two of the relatively few who got out i mean half my mother's family died in the labor camps so for them to then be shipped to england where they couldn't speak the language had no conception 
of England at all, really. I mean, I, I don't want to use a denigrating word, but my parents were essentially peasants. They were, they, were, they were country people who simply had no experience of what they suddenly were shipped to in, in England. And they were basically shipped to England as refugees and wished the best of luck, which, you know, if you're going to be shipped to any country, is England the best place? I don't know. You'll probably tell me it's better than New Jersey. But um, it's, it's, uh, it, for, uh, growing up, we only spoke Polish at home. We never spoke English at home. So English is essentially my second language. Believe me, it really is. And, and so you end up with a perspective where nowhere is really home, which is why it's been easier for me to live in lots of different countries, because you have the Polish culture at home, highly emotional, highly strong in many ways, very much based on all kinds of old traditions. And then outside your house, you have England, which is a lot different from Poland. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason why I asked this, Chris, is because... You, and you've kind of alluded to it, is that your writings are rooted in skepticism. They're writings in humor, of course. There's a lot of layers to how you write articles. They're not just about Walmart here from A to Z, right? You have some a healthy amount of skepticism and, and, you know, as I mentioned, some humor in it, which is what interests me in it. I mean, you know, I, I guess I'm tired of reading blogs that are just business 101. I do want to hear someone's thought process behind how did they draw these conclusions and how do they see it? How is it seen in other parts of the world? So what has been, you know, as you put out some of these articles about these large businesses from a marketing perspective, you know, from a travel perspective, whatever it may be, How's been the response back from the readers? What have you heard about, you know, let's take Absurdly Driven, for example, your ink articles. How has the, the reader feedback been for you? It's what's lovely when you go into something that you never intended to go into in the first place. I had no dream of being a columnist, at least not consciously anyway. I was in advertising a long time as a creative director. So I stumbled into this thing. And first of all, on the, on the technology side, I stumbled into it. So the first reader reactions were hate mail and death threats because I was mocking nerds and nerds at the time really, really couldn't take a joke. And especially when it was in public, especially when it was on a site that was dedicated to technology. And then it took quite a while for them to, so it was like China's great leap forward. It was like many hundreds of thousands of people suddenly got the joke at the same time. And I was very lucky that subsequently I got you – know, people would actually admit that they finally got the joke. And so I got much more warm feedback. Of course, you always get the, the more hateful feedback because that's what the internet was invented for, was hateful feedback. And so you're always going to get that. And then when you write when, – when, when Inc. asked me to write a column, um, business a little bit different, different audience – but hopefully most people appreciate the perspective that I'm writing from, which is there's a certain tone to it. I think when you create anything, too much of journalism, I think it's been a problem with journalism in general, you can juxtapose articles from one newspaper or one news site and put it on another, and no one would know the difference. Everybody's been taught that there's a particular way to write, a particular way to tell the story. And I suppose I'm too dumb to learn stuff like that. So I end up having my own way. 
And all you can hope for as a writer is that people will respond to it, will feel something more than they do from you know a boilerplate kind of uh, a piece of writing. That's all you've got. The whole job of writing is to get someone from the first sentence to the second, and then from the second sentence to the third. People make all kinds of outlandish um, pronouncements about writing. Really, that's the job. You want them to read the whole thing because you bothered to write the whole thing. So your job is to get them from one sentence to the next. Now, my way is my way. I don't necessarily say everyone should do it the way I do it because, good Lord, that would be terribly boring. But I think, I think at heart, too many people think there's only one way of doing it. And what happens is that that way prevails to a degree where people switch off entirely and begin to, to not really care very much. Yeah, so you were writing the blog technically incorrect for CNET, uh, ZDNet, eventually. ZDNet now started on CNET for 10 years, yeah. So did you just completely leave that at some point and focus purely on ink and maybe some other freelance writings, including your blog, or how was that? No, it's still, it's still going today. It's, I mean, the technically incorrect simply moved to ZDNet. It's owned by CBS. So it, it, for 10 years, I did it on CNET, and now it's simply moved to ZDNet. It's their sister, sister sites. How do they take uh, your musings on, like, ink, for example? How do they look at your, your writings and thoughts on ink? Never talked about it. I mean, it's, it's, I think, you know, when you're a writer, you, you work on technically incorrect is absolutely about technology. Uh, tangentially sometimes, but definitely about technology. And Absurdly Driven is about the whole world of business. So they're two separate things. They just happen to be written by the same uh, foolhardy individual. So um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, I do both, and as well as advising clients and doing all sorts of other things. Yeah, so let's, let's stick with absurdly, absurdly Driven here, the ink articles that you, you write. And you know, take me through, if you can, just a generic outlook of how do you see business? Is skepticism the right word? Are you tired of business and everybody wants to work hard and entrepreneurs? What, what is your philosophy behind business and how capitalism is done today? Good Lord, that's a big question. My philosophy of capitalism. Look, I think capitalism has changed terribly much over time. Uh, there are simply people with power and people without power and quite a few people stuck somewhere in the middle. Um, in terms of the way business is done, I think for anyone, I'm sure for you, same for me, you want to be in an environment where you feel you have sufficiently honest relationships with people that the whole process of doing business itself, the actual process, is kind of fun. You want to at least to be able to enjoy it. Even if you're doing something very serious, you want to be able to enjoy it. I think over time what's changed is that as millennials have come through into the workforce, they've seen the way their parents were treated by corporations. In a day when once upon a time, people believed corporations would look after their employees forever, where people actually aspired to having a job for life. And I think over time, what's happened is everyone is now able to see just how dispensable they are. And I think millennials have, begin, have, have watched that with their parents. And then what's happening is they have a much, I think, more 
hmm, what's the word, caustic view of the future in any company. And so they look at a job, I think, through slightly different eyes than those who believed that the corporate structure would look after them forever. And I think that's one of the big differences that's happened over time. So what is the purpose of your articles from Absurdly Driven? What is what is that meant to drive the reader to? What what are we to surmise from I know each article is different and in one case you may talk about Burger King, another one you may talk about Walmart. Some stuff you just talk of flavor of the day. What is Amazon Echo about and how is the FBI? You know, a lot of these things people get through other podcasts and other stuff, but what are you what is the message that you're ultimately trying to serve up to them? I'd, I'd, it would be terrible if I was serving up a single message. What I hope is that when people read my stuff, I hope they both see a slightly different perspective. I hope they laugh a little bit. And I also hope they think a little bit. Because it, a column is very personal. In a way, you're almost a cartoon character. You're, you're creating something that is personal in a sense. It's not all of you, but it's your own little view of the world, and in this case, of the business world. So if I had a single message, dear Lord, that would be, I, I, I would be bored. So every time you write, you look at something. I mean, for me, I look at, say, 250 potential things I could write about, and then something inspires me to just write, to choose a particular one because I see a particular angle or a particular um, aspect to it that maybe hasn't been written about as much, that maybe people just don't know about. Sometimes it's something that appears to be obscure in the first place and then maybe isn't. It's that there isn't a, if you think about it, if you write a regular column, every time you get up in the morning and you're going to write something, in my case, I have no clue what I'm going to write. It's not like I'm, you know, preparing weeks in advance what I'm going to write. It, it simply isn't like that. So what is the process for you? Entirely spontaneous. It's, um, I don't know, I, I, you know, I just like you were talking about my childhood and parents. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a very um, non, we didn't have a lot of money. I, well, what's the technical term for that? It's, the word poor isn't allowed these days, is it? We didn't have a car. We didn't have a phone, not even a landline. We didn't have a lot of things. So the way you could communicate um, would be either verbally or you'd write something called a letter. And those were the only ways of actually communicating with people. So for me, I guess I learned early how to communicate with words, you know, written down. What are some things that you've seen in the recent news? Let's maybe steer away from politics. Let's keep the focus on business. I know you can go politics. I can as well, but I, I try not to share that on the podcast. I try and avoid it. Honestly, I try and avoid it, Priest, because we've all become it. And we all see it every day, and it's. I think it's affecting everyone to uh, um, an extreme degree these days. And there's nothing funny in it anymore. There used to be something funny in it once upon a time. Agreed, a hundred percent. So, what what do you see in business news today, for example, that may not be in your article that you would say is absurd? <laughs> this is so much. I mean, seriously, you look at. For me, things that make me laugh on an absurd level are when the likes of Google comes out suddenly out of the blue and claims that its its main purpose in life is to preserve uh, people's privacy. 
when for years and years and years it was extremely well known that Google's attitude to privacy was was so cavalier as to be practically non-existent. So stuff like that, the things that people claim versus the reality of what is, it's only now, especially in terms of tech companies, I think being exposed to a greater and greater degree. Not that regulation will necessarily be able to change that overnight, but it's possible that people will become more aware it's it's the people's stupidity which has allowed all this to happen. I mean, we were all dumb enough to sacrifice all our personal information just so that we could get twenty likes on Instagram. It's this. It's true, and and there's something kind of sad about that. That we were so desperate for, call it recognition, call it I don't know what you want to call it, but fame. I guess we see it as fame. Um, that we were prepared to sacrifice and give away everything about ourselves to a degree that I think it would be possible to argue is somewhat unhealthy, unhealthy for us, and I'm not sure it's that healthy for society. If, As we're getting to the stage where the phrase surveillance capitalism is becoming a, a, a real thing, right? When you see facial, facial recognition coming in, even when we know it doesn't work, even when we know it has terrible biases by race and in all sorts of other ways, yet uh, I think we've become victim to uh, nerds sitting in, in nerdy places who create things, don't stop to think of the consequences of that creation, and then we lap it up because we think it looks cool or because it makes our lives, we save five seconds in a day. I mean, seriously, how much difference does facial recognition at an airport make as opposed to handing someone your boarding card? I mean, seriously, it really isn't a lot of difference. But increasingly, airlines are now using facial recognition because they claim it's quicker. And of course, that isn't the reason. It's because they're amassing data. Everything, every company now, and I'm sure you see this too, is in one way or another a data company, right? Car, cars. Cars are now, then car companies are not going to make as much profit on selling the car as they are on selling the information they have about you while you drive the car. Hey guys, many of you know that I've started my own business in many different ways. I've started several different side hustles. And frankly, there's no real way to duplicate myself other than outsourcing my business. And along the way, I've found trials and tribulations of meeting different people using different platforms like Upwork, Fiverr, all these different systems that entrepreneurs and other people like myself tend to use. And I wrote a book about it. It's called The Beginner's Guide to Outsourcing Your Business. Find, hire, and build your team virtually today. As an entrepreneur, you cannot handle every business process yourself. In business, results matter and your goal to produce the best results matter. How do you do this? You need a team. Read this virtual outsourcing book. It's on Amazon. Click the link in today's show notes. It's only $2.99. So click the link in the book description. Let me know that you ordered it today. Love to hear your feedback about it. And if you're looking to build out your team and expand your brand, outsourcing is the answer. Pick up the book, The Beginner's Guide to Outsourcing Your Business today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I manage I manage 
our whole partnership affiliate program for a large PC company. And uh, I know from an affiliate perspective that when we get these new brands out, there's one partner, very popular. You see TV ads now. They're called Honey. And basically what they do is they automatically apply coupon codes if you're searching for something. So they're taking away the day of where you had to go out and physically search for a coupon code, but they're automatically applying it if you download the the bar on Honey. Now, at the end of the day, I think you know for those that want to save, so forth and so on, it's a good service. They've been a good partner for for said company that I I, I said I'm I'm managing. But at the end of the day, they're a data company, right? They're collecting shopper habits. Now they've never told me that. I've never had a conversation with them and said, "Hey, what are you driving towards?" But you can see a lot of these companies, Google, so forth and so on, that are driving towards data being the new oil. Like Google, for example is now jumping into the health space. They are trying to be the one where, you know, they serve up, you know, a customer. They're they're trying to get look at, you know, different diseases across the board and and different people and and put it almost in like a Google portfolio and serve it up toward to doctors and people are concerned about HIPAA laws and other stuff and there's ways around that. So yeah, there there is data you know, I said it simply enough. Data is the new oil. And that's what I like about your articles, Chris, is that I don't know if we can avoid it. I think we're far too gone now where people can try all of a sudden to be private. Maybe there's some that can go off the grid, if you will, quote unquote, off. But I think we're it's too late. I think we've already opened ourselves up for it all. And uh, it is just a time that we live in. But the reason why I love your writings is because it reminds me of the show Black Mirror. Have you ever seen Black Mirror on Netflix? Oh, of course. Yeah. So your writings put me in the mind state of that. It it kind of calls out the absurdity of what's going on. Not that you're going to change it. I don't think anybody is watching Black Mirror and saying, I'm going to stop being so engaged in my phone because of what happened in that episode. But it's similar to Twilight Zone. It's like kind of showing you yourself. And what's slowly eroding away at the fabric of us? For me, I'm, I'm just really writing about people. Even if I'm writing about a company, I'm writing about decisions that people took in the company. I'm writing about how those decisions will affect their customers, who are people. In the end, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. Insofar as the end point is so ridiculous that one of the first time I ever was asked to write a column, um, it was CNET. They wanted me to go to something called the Singularity Summit. And do you know what that is, Priest? You ever heard of the Singularity Summit? Never heard of it. It's basically where a bunch of incredibly intelligent people turn up and express how they can't wait for the day when they become robots. And they they make all kinds of speeches about the science, about how wonderful it'll be when they have chips in their heads. And one of the classics is is... Ray Kurzweil, who was, I think his technical title is Director of Engineering for Google, he said that in a really short time, we'll have chips in our heads. And when asked, why uh, why would you want a chip in your head? He said, well, whenever I see Larry Page, uh, one of the two Google co-founders, walk down the campus, I never know something funny to say to him. But if I have a chip in my head, the chip will tell me what to say to him. Won't that be great? He, he described that state as being godlike. I don't know about you. I don't think I want to be godlike. 
I think it'd be a lot too much pressure for one thing. But I, I, I'm not sure that's something I aspire to. These people believe that that is progress to have a chip in your head with all this information that's just going to automatically tell you what to say, what to think, or remind you of stuff. And I'm not sure that how much that's human anymore. And in his case, he describes it as a hybrid of human and robot. And if that is what people aspire to, or those in control of a lot of the technology aspire to, I find that absurd now and sad later. You know, it, it's there's there's nothing to me that's terribly positive about that. And I don't know about you. Maybe you look forward to the day, priest. No, I I mean I don't. You know, I know we're moving towards that because I remember, you know, a time where we didn't have a phone latched tethered to our our hand arm all day, and now we are comfortably right. And I'm I'm included in that when I say that. But I'm I'm certainly not not trying to move towards a godlike creature. I mean, I've intentionally removed myself from places like Facebook, like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. I don't do any of that stuff. I'm only on Twitter and LinkedIn, but I don't know if that protects me or saves me. I just kind of think we are in the belly of the beast at to some degree uh, from a technical perspective. And I don't mean that to be frightening. I'm using that as kind of a euphemism, but I, I, I think we are where we are. And um, I, I don't know what to do with it, but that's why I appreciate writers like yourself who kind of say, let's just take another view at, at, at technology and marketing and so forth and so on. And that's, that's why I have this podcast, right? I, wanna, I want us to start asking ourselves the question, why are we doing what we're doing and where is it that you're ultimately trying to go? If you want to be a robot, then by all means, I mean, some people are saying they're they're non this, non that. So who knows where people ultimately want to drive to? I'm just trying to figure this out myself along the way, right? And I'm I'm in the space. I work for a tech company in the marketing space, so I'm in the middle of it. But I I do I do love peeking my head outside the window and listening to people like you and hearing how you come to that. That's why I wanted to get your background. And I ask, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself in your voice because a lot of times. You can do this intro and I can read off your bio, but that's a little bit doesn't have the sincerity in it where I can really have this platform to ask you questions and really get your thoughts. And more importantly, people listen to this podcast to learn from it because I think you're an amazing storyteller. Right. And, I, you know, one of the things I ask myself is like, I want to write like that. I want to write engaging articles. And I know there's no rhyme or rhythm to what you do, but I, I'm like, you know, Chris, tell me. What are the secrets? And maybe there's not secrets. That's that's not the right word. But what are some of the things you have to being a better storyteller? I mean, it's those kind of things that I, I always want to hear and learn more from. Oh, I, I wish I had. I wish I had those secrets. But no, I appreciate that. You know, we can have a human conversation here. Uh, but surely within your technology company, do you, do you actually hear anybody fighting against what you would? described as inevitable do people within your technology company say yeah that's going too far yeah that's not very human yeah that's stalking people do they that's a really good question so i do you know there is a morality in the company particularly within our department that from a marketing perspective i don't think we're ever pushed up against anything where we say wait a minute is that moral we shouldn't be doing this i don't think we've faced that yet so no i haven't heard that discussion 
but I haven't seen us on the line either to have that discussion. And then secondly, no, I don't think we ever have the question of, are we moving to robot land either? Because we're involved in smart devices and so forth and so on. So I don't know. Does that march you towards being a robot? You know, I don't think so, but I don't know where all this tech is going. I didn't know Fitbit was going to be a thing 15 years ago. I didn't know I'd keep my arm attached to my hand 20 years ago. So you're kind of watching and you're you're learning and pivoting as you go, sort of. But how much are you resisting? I mean, if, if you're particularly a lot of tech companies simply create gadgets to create more engagement, to create more dependence while they're at the same time saying, we want you to use this gadget less. But really, they don't. Really, they want, to, they want to maximize your engagement so they can make the most money out of it. And sometimes, I think one of the problems in business is when your focus is entirely on how much money can we make, as opposed to how can we make a healthy profit, actually have incredibly healthy and happy employees, and have customers whom we're not taking advantage of. That, I think is easily lost in a, 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 in, a, in a business world that is becoming more and more based on machines, on data, on cold information created by algorithms. I, I think that's, that, that is a very, very difficult area. But aren't consumers and workers stuck in the middle of, we also understand, I'll, I'll use me as the example there's a lot of positive advances that have come from tech. So the last thing you want to do is stand in the way. I mean, if I asked you a question that you didn't know right now, first place you would go to is Google, right? So there's, whereas you and I, back in the day, we used to go to the library and have to thumb through cards in a, you know, in a million file folder area physically, you know, so there's some advantages. So it's almost like, what do you resist and what don't you? And sometimes by the time you resist, it's too late. It's knowing not just what to resist, but how early to resist it before it takes you over. Before you become so embedded in it. Like, like you, I used to do Instagram and I gave it up and I found no pain other than friends saying, why don't you post pictures to Instagram anymore? And 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 I go, well, because I got fed up of it. I got fed up of having to look through everyone's picture and liking them all because if I didn't like my friend's picture, they'd get upset. And that's basically the kind of loop that Facebook, owner of Instagram, wants you to be in all the time, right? They, they want you to be in that loop. They want you to get that, not only get the satisfaction, but feel guilty about not giving others that satisfaction. And it's, it's, it's actually, honestly, I'll tell you, I did a, a, I emceed a conference in New York about four or five years ago, and it was an ad tech conference run by a company called Quantcast. And a huge conference held, of course, in a church on Park Lane, massive conference area in New York. And, um, and they, they said, we want you to emcee it and just do whatever you want. And I thought, ah, music to my ears. And so what I did was, all the people who were going to be speaking, I would be interviewing some, some of them on stage. Um, they were experts on how to you know, f find everything about your, out about your consumers. We know so much now. It's incredible. It's so wonderful. And so what I did was I went to the personal Facebook and Twitter accounts and found out personally embarrassing things about them and opened every single interview or every single way I presented them 
was to begin with certain embarrassing information. So, for example, there was one woman who was very high up in a tech company, general manager, and lovely woman, and all very much dressed up in business attire, looking, you know, very slick. And so my first question to her is, how come you like cage fighting? Because, because, because on her Facebook profile was stuff about cage fighting. And of course, she wasn't really prepared for that question. And then I had a follow-up. And then I had a follow-up, which was, do you remember what you were doing on December the 15th, 2013, or whatever it was? And she's, her top lip began to shake a little bit. And she said, no. And I said, well, you, you went on Facebook and took a test to test your mental age. And I said, do you remember the result? And she said, no. And I said, well, it was 19. And so and the, the, it's true. I mean, I, the point was I didn't stalk these people. In the, everything was public information. All you had to do was go find it. So I wasn't doing anything creepy in the sense that these people were standing there declaiming about how they knew everything about customers and consumers and people. They had all the data, you know, but what they didn't like, um, and of course we all had dinner afterwards and had a good laugh about it, but at the time, I'm not sure they were all entirely happy with the stuff. Like one person, I found a picture of them with Mario Lopez and, you know, I had to ask questions about that. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's, it's one thing that we're propelled by business we're propelled in our jobs, and we believe that all this data amassing is a good thing because it's going to advance our careers. But when we privately think about what's actually happening, I'm not sure we like it that much. Yeah, that, that is amazing social test on how people will respond if you really use the information that they thought was just for their few quote-unquote friends and come to find out that it's for the world. That's mind blowing. I don't know if I would have the chutzpah to do that, but I wouldn't be a. See, this is the thing. I wouldn't be afraid. Whatever I put out online, I wouldn't be afraid for anybody to call that out on me. So, if you would have got on the podcast and say, "Priest, I went back to your Twitter account to 2017, and you cussed out the Milwaukee Bucks for not doing such and such," because I can live in my truth, whatever that is. So, Chris, on the on the marketing side. You know, I read an article a while back um, when I first started digging in your articles. One of the ones that I thought was a really good one was about the, I believe he was the Sprint guy that moved over to, no, he was Verizon and moved over to Sprint. But you you kind of titled it that he, he lamented about corporate America, sort of. Oh, do you think I remember this article? I, I think vaguely I remember that column. Uh, vaguely? But it, a long time in my... No, no, but what but what I'm what I'm driving at, because I'm talking about the sprint guy who kind of shit over, and then you kind of wrote an article about, you know, th this guy who's lamenting about corporate America and him feeling like, you know, being in corporate America is utterly dispensable, which is something you talked about earlier. But I'm I'm talking more about the sprint guy and just being a marketing guy in general, overall philosophy about marketing. How do you see marketers? Do you see them as propeller heads too, or nerds that are misguiding people? I, I mean, I'm in that group. I have to be honest. But what's your thoughts there? It's very. It's not like you can generalize about all marketers. I think one thing. That of course. And I know you worked at Publicis, by the way. I know you worked at Publicis. I've worked at all kinds of places. Um, it, it's worth bearing in mind that the average CMO 
only keeps their jobs for about three years. So, and on top of that, in general, if you look at the way corporations are structured, the CMO doesn't have a particularly powerful role within a corporation. It's very rare that a CEO or a CFO will respect a CMO so much as to put them on the board and have them sit next to them in board meetings. So it, there's a consciousness that those in marketing um, have temporary lives. They're, they're, they have certain needs that will propel their careers, they hope, within their own organizations. When you're an ad agency working outside of that, you have your own and normally very egotistical needs, which are often somewhat different from the needs of the CMO. Yes, there are some good working partnerships between marketing organizations and ad agencies. Um, it's not necessarily that common. And so I don't think you can generalize about all marketing people are like this and all ad people are like that, but you've got to hope every time that the needs and the ambitions of the marketer are aligned, at least to some extent, with what you as the creator of ads want to do and can do. And that's not always the case because, of course, what happens in many organizations is that global corporations do deals with global ad agencies. So it happens that, for example, ad agency staff will be stuck with, or the marketing staff will be stuck with an agency and it's, it's a deal that's been created over their heads, and they have to work with that agency, whether they like it or not. So what you hope, and in creating marketing, what you hope is that people will remember what the brief was in the first place. In my experience, it's fairly rare that happens, um, because so much, honestly, so much politics happens in between, that it's very difficult. You know, for a lot of people who are creating uh, marketing on behalf of clients, um, they end up presenting their work to junior people who then present it to senior people. There's all sorts of layers, as I'm sure you know, you've risen to the top of your tech company, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to know who the ultimate decision maker is, what their mindset is. It, it's a very, very difficult area entirely. No, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, marketing is tough because you're seen as one, two things. You're seen as, you know, obviously internally, you're trying to deliver a product, you're trying to deliver a message, but then sometimes on the outside, you just seem like snake oil salesman or something along those lines. And yeah, because no CFO can quantify what it is you do and no C necessarily, because a lot of CEOs used to be CFOs these days. Um, they can't do that either. They can't put a number on it. And when it suddenly has a success, they understand it just as little as they do when something failed. I certainly try to put meaning to my work. I mean, I, you know, I'm creating business, I'm creating functions that have employed others to, to be their best person, whatever that may be in the, their respect. And then I'm also building platforms like this to have conversations with people like you to share other messages. So I, I'm, I'm trying to craft a life that I want, even within these realms of technology and marketing and places that either you have people that are really fanned out and interested about it, or 
other people that are just completely turned off by it. And that's why, you know, I want to come through as a human being in the midst of all of that and have real conversations, even ones that may be hard, because ultimately, you know, we, we have to live together, man. We have to have these discussions, you know, for nothing else for the next generation about where we're going and why we're doing it this way. How have you managed to survive through the marketing world? You, you've risen very high. How, wh- what were your secrets? I don't know if I have secrets. I, you know, I, I just said it that, you know, my philosophy has always been, okay, on the business side, I've always looked at, you know, some very tactical things, right? I can wear my suit and be on the stage with you. And I'll tell you that I look at profit, you know, process and people and all these things. And that's what I've done. But at the heart of me, I think people sense that I'm really genuine about where I'm trying to drive things and that there's more to me than just being a marketer for this company, which I think adds intrigue. I think my secret, and I don't know if this is a secret, but I really try to remain genuine in what I do. I'm not really forcing myself. I just take tools and things that I've learned and and try to apply them in business. But at the end of the day, it's not who I am. It's what I do. And there's a separation that I try to make clear in my conversation with people. And I think people receive that. I think they see that whether I'm speaking at a conference or having a discussion, they see like, I'm not, I'm not always on, you know, you always go to these conferences in different places and people are just always on. And that's very, you know, very, very, it makes you put your walls up, but I can be very disarming because I'm not on, I'm not trying to sell you nothing. I'm not trying to climb up in a career on your back. I I really just want to make my lane for my gain essentially. So that's about as simple as it gets. I, you know, I'm a father. I have other things going on and I enjoy having conversations with people that I love reading. And this kind of is what keeps me vibrant and all that good stuff. So look, I, I could talk to you for hours. I, I think, again, what you bring is fascinating to me. Again, I, you know, I've had multiple people that talk about psychology of business. We've talked about Instagram, other social media stuff, why I think the way I do. So this just adds to that. You know, if people want to hear more from you or how to how to maybe take in some of the content that we talked about, where can they go to? Tell them where they can find your blog and all that good stuff. There's Technically Incorrect on ZDNet and there's Absurdly Driven on Inc.com. And then you you have your personal blog too. That I haven't written that for a while. The personal thing it was there for a bit. I got so busy on the other columns that I just I just didn't have time for it. It just has basic information about who I am, what I've done in the past. Hey, I won a gold Clio. Aren't you impressed? You know that's what I, how I should have described myself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was named what was it the most influential person on Madison Avenue? How about that? I. I saw that. I saw that. Look, I, I know I should have put said that at the beginning, but I I'm, I can sell other people. I'm not very good at selling myself. I just sort of, you know, I, I like you. I just hope I get by and people appreciate at least some of what I do or say or don't say, frankly. Yeah, that. I mean, the older I get, Chris, that's that's really what I'm appreciating. I'm appreciating the kind of the simplicity in humans. I mean, there's. We've created, I, I, you know, one of the things when I talked about, hey, what do you see in business that you don't like right now? I could go in depth about some of the stuff that I've seen and I could give you names, but I won't. But there are people like 
you know, that are out there selling programs and different things. And it just, the entrepreneurship environment has just, you know, sucked the life out of people. So I, you know, I'm trying to bring a different voice of simplicity. There's nothing wrong with being engaged in, in wanting to be driven, but let's, let's, as you point out in your article, let's look at some of the absurdity of stuff and let's, let's take a step back and reevaluate myself. And I, trust me, I do this all the time, both in my career as a father, I'm always checking my gut. I'm always, am I the best coworker? Am I the best husband? I do this frequently, probably more than I should admit. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that's an important piece to us. So Chris, you've, you've been amazing, man. I can't thank you enough for the time and your willingness to jostle the schedule around and just sit with me and just have a conversation about your articles. And it meant a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Priest. It was great to talk. Thank you. It meant a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Priest. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed the interview. If you haven't heard of Chris, please check him out again. He has some really good musings on the business and sometimes the humor within it, but really giving you a different perspective. It still makes you think at the end of it all which is something that I really appreciate. I appreciate humor sort of infused with some real honest truths. And you can also hear his enthusiasm through the interview. I think that's something hopefully that you found as well. So look, guys, please let us know what you thought about the interview. Feel free to email me directly, directly at priest at insidethemarketplace.com. Otherwise, Check us out anywhere that you can listen to a podcast. If you want to listen in other places or share in other places, we're everywhere. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play, iHeartRadio. We're on iTunes, of course. And everywhere where you can play a podcast, we should be there. And if you don't see us there, let us know and I'll give you $20 if you let me know. Maybe not $20, maybe $5. Nah, $20 works. So anyways, until next Sunday when we have another great guest. I'll see you soon. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious.